Get ready for Crack the Customer Code, your audio guidebook for creating incredible customer journeys. Hey, Adam, I think it's really interesting that One of them that we've heard a lot, thanks to our sponsor, Alita, is their tagline of truth in action, right? A hundred percent, right? And just really understanding what data is telling you and the truth behind it and you know, sort of being focused on the reality when you're, when you're using that data, right? That's exactly right. And understanding that, you know what, a piece of data doesn't necessarily equal truth. You have to make sure that you're looking for those insights, those actionable ways to take that and turn it into something and that you're listening for that nuance and all of those things. And so I think that that theme of really understanding what is truth, what are we really looking for and what can we do with it? That came out in big ways in this interview that we have to share today. And I think it's it's really exciting because this topic, these topics, I should say, we covered a lot of ground here. Yes. Um, is all of them are so much about kind of unpacking what do we know about machines and what do we know about how data translates into more data and into what we assume are truths. But then also, what do we know about ourselves and how does all that go together? It's really fascinating stuff. It is. And when we take all of those layers and say, okay, computer, you take over, mm -hmm. right? And we give it to artificial intelligence and try to figure out how to eliminate our biases and try to make the data more tr as true as possible, right? Because it's never going to be perfect. I think that's a it's a fascinating glimpse into the future, and it's a fascinating business challenge. And our guest Oveta Sampson does a great job of you know walking through what are the challenges in doing this. Yep, yep. Let me tell you about our guest today. I'm really excited about this one. As a principal design director at Microsoft, Oveta Sampson works with a team of talented researchers, designers, and engineers that work with large-scale customers to visualize a clear path to digital transformation that starts now and builds towards the future. An IDEO alumna, Oveta's sweet spot is the intersection of humanity, business, and technology. Combining her MS in computer science, human-computer interaction, with her BA in communications, Oveta spends most of her time helping people visualize humanity's future and how to ethically and with compassion serve people through digital and intelligent products. When not working or teaching, Oveta is swimming, biking, and running in exotic locales and occasionally doing these races called Ironmans. Oveta, welcome to the podcast. We're so happy you're here and I cannot wait to have this conversation with you. Thanks for being here. Yes, Jeannie, I'm so glad you asked me. I really loved what you've been doing in customer experience all these years and you know, I'm one of your biggest fans, so I'm so honored <laughs> to be here on your podcast. Oh, thank you. Uh, well, it's great to have you, Yvette, and this is such an important topic because as AI gets more traction, more and more service interactions are being facilitated or even handled by AI. And we're learning more and more about how bias gets literally learned by the machine. So you're an expert in this. Tell us a bit about how this happens. Yeah, I think this is really interesting because bias has two definitions here. There's human bias and then there's um, machine bias. And the human bias that I'm talking about is our cognitive biases that we have as humans and have carried around for centuries. And this is like undiscovered in research through psychology and, and cognitive research. 
And then there's machine bias that is more mostly learned from us, to be quite honest. And so bias enters to through uh, enters AI models through us, really. We're the culprit. And I wrote this medium piece called Fixing the Human Problem in AI. <laughs> and and three ways that I think it normally bias kind of rears its head and that's in human decisions about what data is collected, stored and how it's classified. So your address and zip code become associated with neighborhoods and crime statistics and stuff like that. So a number takes on meaning based upon a classification. And then the second is human decisions about what data is used in training, designing, and creating AI models. Most people really don't understand that most algorithm models, which are the basis of AI, are trained using data. And so you, engineers and data scientists and even designers make decisions about what data is used in that training. And so if you train a, a Autom uh, 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 autonomous vehicle on recognizing pedestrians using images from Stanford University students, you could see how bias could get into that, that model because, I mean, I don't know about you, but not every um, ethnicity is, is automatically being trained um, using those images, correct? So... So the last way is, is, is really, to me, the most important. And this goes to marginalized communities, to, to really what we talk about when we talk about ethics and AI, is really what's ignored or left out in the above two processes that I just um, talked about. Basically, bias enters by discriminating against data. Um, what data is left out. So this is often the most important and least trackable way of how data seeps into a seemingly unbiased algorithm. So for example, with the U.S. Census, um, the U.S. Census we know started out with, you know, land-owning males, right, were counted and classified, but also slaves were counted and classified, women, the, and then over the years, more and more subsets, but still LGBTQ folks aren't classified in U.S. Census data, so they're left out. And so does that mean they actually exist, quote unquote, um, for resources and things like that? And so I think one of the ways that bias enters into AI is, is what data is left out of the process of creating models. I, I love this like big thinking we have to do around these topics because part of this is we don't know what we don't know, right? right. <laughs> like, yeah. <laughs> it's frightening. Because, it's funny because, you know, I'm currently writing a book. Sorry to pitch that so early. Oh, please <laughs> on, do. On integrating design, research, and data for, or, and data science for more ethical AI. And one of the things that I focus on in, in my book that, that I'm writing is that most people really don't understand or have what I call low AI literacy. Um, a recent Gallup poll just said that 85% of us in America use some kind of product that's based in AI. I don't think a lot of people realize that. Mm -hmm. They don't realize that their Netflix and even their app for what um, Kindle book they read or what um, grocery 
you know, category pops up in their Instacart. Like all of these are low level machine learning algorithm models, but they're definitely machine driven kind of interactions. Mm -hmm. And so I focus a lot, I have a degree in, in human computer interaction, and I focus a lot of when the human bias and the AI bias intersect. And that's when things can go a little bit awry. And we can talk a little bit about that. But, it yeah. seems like a, a, it's almost like a play on the, uh, I'm going to do a little transformation here, but uh, it seems like bias in, bias out, right? Correct. Yeah. <laughs> and I think, I think one of the, I, and look, you know, I'm one woman, so this is one woman's opinion, but in my, I've been working in this area for about 10 years um, in interaction design and technology design, but then in AI specifically for the last six to eight years. And one of the things I think is, is a wrong track here is trying to 100% eliminate bias. And I, I like my bumper sticker later talks about this, <laughs> but um, I like to say, we don't, I, I don't think that ethical AI is about total elimination of bias because even that is bias. I was having a conversation with somebody who works on Microsoft search engine Bing and we talked about kind of like some um, things that were introduced features to kind of like identify questionable content. But then I asked her, I said, who defines questionable content? Mm -hmm. And and some people may take that as overstepping the line. And so even in our, our, our intent, right, is to reduce bias, we sometimes introduce it um, in a and don't know that impact. And so instead of eliminating or reducing bias, I really talk about transparency and context and eliminating and, and illuminating um, the type of data we're using, right? Or how we're classifying that data, or this model was trained on images from the University of Stanford, or from Stanford <laughs> University. So really being as transparent as possible in the design and engineering of these products, rather than trying to fight it by eliminating, to be quite honest, the culprit, which is us. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so if you had to, you know, you mentioned these low level AI uh, ways that we kind of interact with the world right now. Yeah. And there are a lot of organizations who are starting there, who are starting to experiment with this. Yeah. And they're, they're hearing this right now from you and they're saying, okay, so what do we do about this? How do we make sure to use Adam's phrase, like we're not, you know, putting in the bias that then we'll output the bias. <laughs> like, yeah, I think what are those strategies? I think that's a really good, simple way to look at it. Like if you're looking at making a recipe and that's really what an algorithm model is, it's a recipe. And one of the things I watch, I'm like a foodie. So I watch chef's table a lot. And one of the things they talk about is your ingredients. Where do your ingredients come from? And if you're a monk in, in, in high in the mountains where you grow all of your food organically, then you're absolutely your soup is going to taste different, right? Than, than if you kind of like buy some processed stuff and try to put it together. And so one of the things that are my first rule is, is when we're designing, practically designing ethical AI, not in an ivory tower, but actually in product making, is really do not separate people from data. 
when we divorce people from data, we tend to get into trouble, right? And what I mean by that is really always every step of the way thinking about the people behind the data points that you're using to create your model. And so for example, if you're if you're going to create a product that is a virtual assistant or will it's it has good intentions of helping um, you really want to talk to people who might use this product first so that they so you can get some understanding about what they really need in their in their assistant type of um, product before you kind of like automatically assume that a task that should be automated should always be automated, for example. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, you know, when I, when I work with um, engineers and data scientists and other researchers and we go through the product making process, one of our truths is not to divorce people from their data. Um, so every time we're looking at creating an interaction or a product or a service, we're really first and foremost doing exercises with people uh, co-creating with people so that we get informed by those people on what we really should uh, automate and what we shouldn't. And when you create and co-create with people, you'll get a sense pretty quickly what's creepy and what's not. <laughs> like, that is true. Wait, right? And so by not separating on the front end people from the data that you're collecting and using in these models with co-creation and, and co-development, but also on the back end, treating data as a stakeholder like you do with individuals. So if you're researching with data, if you're using data in these models, if you're trying to decide what data to surface versus not, always think about that zip code is tied to a person's home. Right. Mm -hmm. And for example, um, there was this. Um, so, so how we all have our IPS addresses. Mm -hmm. One of the things that people don't know is that there's a there's a company out there. I won't name them, but there's a company out there that assigns IPS addresses to all of our laptops and and tablets and all that kind of stuff. Every time we're we're on the internet, there's an address. But what most people don't know is that it's statistically. Um, created um, using a model that kind of geographically pinpoints an area of where that signal is coming from. And so if you just think about it in aggregate, it's like longitude and latitude, right? Like it's just numbers. But if you're a farm, uh, a, a woman, an older lady in a farmhouse in, in, in South Africa who was getting FBI agents showing up to her home and, and people showing up to her home on a daily basis because they were tracing the IPS address to like a 100 mile radius, right? And her house was in this radius. It was not exact, right? The IPS was not exact, but but the address was using this radius as a kind of general address for where the IPS was coming from. Well, police investigation units and and FBI and and all kinds of people were tracing these IPS address, divorced folks, people who were trying to hunt down, and they ended up at this woman's home. And so what, one of the things I talked to the, the creators of this model about is like, if that was your home, would you want to get a little bit more accurate? 
Mm-hmm. Right. So not sep- so so not looking at the longitude and latitude and looking at who actually lives in this area that we're saying the IPS address comes to. Statistically, they were fine, right? They were accurate, quote unquote, in their model because they had a radius and they told people they were in the radius of whatever the it was. I think it was mm-hmm. like 100 miles. Wow. But realistically, they were totally wrong because this poor old lady had all these people showing up to her yeah. house. Not kindly either, because people were using this IPS address for nefarious reasons. Mm-hmm. So that's an example of how not thinking behind, thinking about the people behind the data can be harmful um, in, in AI creation and, and, and automatic creation of products. Well, and, you know, I think that also opens up... It's a, Interesting example, because it opens up a larger question. Now, we are not a political show, so I don't want to get too political. But, you know, it seems like we're in the Wild West with this stuff right now. And we do have laws, um, you know, around discrimination that have come up over time and developed over time. Where do you think, you know, it's a very high level. Where do you think we're going to be with this topic and public policy? Where, uh, how much is the law and government going to get involved in how we create AI in the future? Well, we all know that the we all know that the government really treats these issues with a very precise and precision scalpel, correct? No. <laughs> oh, they're sorry. Hammer, right? They're just gonna hammer it. Sorry, I was choking on something. Yeah. <laughs> There's no way. I mean, when you have Mark Zuckerberg, you know, being questioned by <laughs> by senators who literally do not understand how his product works. Mm -hmm. Like we're so far removed from our current um, government really understanding. And to be quite honest, when when I was working at Audio on on development of AI products, you know, GDPR came out and in Europe and and Audio Audio, we created at the same time, our AI ethics kind of practitioner uh, principles. And and I remember uh, Rebecca Bex, uh, who was our, our, our lawyer in London, saying this is awesome because it really kind of dovetails with the European new laws on, on privacy and data. You know, we the U.S. is behind on this, way behind. And that has a lot to do with our individualism and kind of capitalist society. I get it. But AI, because of its unprecedented scale and its ability to affect and not just affect us in the way that physically, like we talked about with the poor South African farm lady who basically the law told her to move like that was their (laughs) solution. Solution. Uh, But also cognitively, I mean, you know, what happened in 2016 with the conversion of Cambridge and, and analytics stealing data and then using content that was basically kind of forcing people to the extreme parts of the internet through algorithms. I mean, this was proven, both Google and Facebook algorithms have been revised since then Um, because of YouTube. You know, I mean, literally there was a flat earth conference that people actually attended (laughs) and you laugh. But to me, these are outcomes of when human bias and algorithm bias intersect. And these are things that are wholesale can be harmful to us 
the deaths of automatic, uh, autom you know, automatic cars or people in autonomous cars thinking they can just, you know, abandon their, their, um, um, their ability to drive. And this is automation bias. Like this is a cognitive bias that we have to be kind of cautious of, cognizant of when we're creating these products. And so for government in the United States, one of the things we have to do, and this is what I talk about, is boosting your AI literacy. So I teach a class specifically for designers and researchers who are not data scientists on designing ethical AI. And the first thing in that class I do is, is boost their, their AI and data literacy. Boost your understanding of how these products work and how, to be quite honest, lifting the veil on what has been the black box and turning it to more of a glass box, as a friend used to say. And that's what government really needs to do. They need to have folks in policy who's, I mean, they have a CTO, like, you know, in Chicago, one of the, one of the best examples of this is the Streetlight Project, Jeannie, where... We, um, the CTO, um, uh, in Chicago, uh, uh okay, now I'm going to mess her name up, but, um, she, you know, she, the chief technology officer in Chicago created a, a whole kind of public inquiry process that I loved that allowed folks to have input into where Chicago was going to put these automatic data collection cameras and and these cameras were taking images but they were they were also sensors right they were taking kind of like quality of of the air and all this kind of stuff and you would think that people would have a lot of privacy but there were a lot of people who wanted those cameras to actually you know identify people mm -hmm. right crime and stuff and so the the city of chicago really had to draw the line on um on what those images would be used for, how long they would be kept, who would have access to them. These are the things that you want to kind of take into con into into um, in, in consideration, right? Yeah. I mean, you want you want to be thinking about it. You, yeah. I mean, when we're designing, right. you we're can't trying, design yeah. it, right? And right. so in government, you really have to have that public viewing and public input. But also in corporate, I think you should have that as well, which is what I talked about is incorporating people into your creation process. And and the Chicago Chicago did it really well with their 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 um, data or street. Oh my God, Jeannie, I don't know the correct name for it, but um, the the data collection project that they mm -hmm. did a couple of years ago. Yeah, I, I, it's a great example. We'll have to find that and put it into our show notes for for listeners, but. You know, it's it's fascinating. This stuff is all kind of up. You can't see me, but I'm holding my hands above my head um, <laughs> because <laughs> because this stuff, it's so all up there and there's so much to unpack and there's so much to explore. And that's why I knew this would be a fascinating conversation. And it's gone way too fast because we could go into so much. <laughs> oh, but I'm going to array of things initiative. Oh, very good. It's a very good example of how government really did the process, I think, well. Yes. Now, I have a bad example of predictive policing in Chicago that we can talk about, but that, that's for that, another episode. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> but, but, uh, 
Oveta, we've been talking, like I said, so high up here. I'm going to ask you to bring it way, way down yes. and tell us if you had to put a customer experience phrase on a bumper sticker, what would it be? Yeah. So my bumper sticker is all people create data and all data is created by people. Woo. Nice. Love it. Boom. Yeah. <laughs> Love it. The, that's the one line I use in every presentation because it really brings it down and it brings it home. Mm -hmm. If you just remember nothing I say and remember that all that all people create data and all data is created by people. I know some data scientists will argue with me on that, <laughs> but, but I'm not talking about sensors, guys. But um, but it really brings it home on how you can kind of center whatever framework you have on creating ethical AI. Because if you my pillars of truth are all data is created by people and all people create data. Data is not truth. Data as a stakeholder and and in design, discipline proximity is not enough. So these are my pillars of truth of, of designing ethical AI. And, and what they mean is like you really have to question when you use data. It's not truth. And and just depending upon it as truth, it is is we have a principle that we created at IDEO called listen for unintended consequences. Never set it and forget it, right? Just don't, if you create it, don't just leave it alone. Always listen in to see if it's doing what it's supposed to do. With the example of YouTube, YouTube um, or, or even Facebook, you know, in 2015, Facebook newsfeed was, was kind of okay. You know, you would get New York Times, you would get, um, you know, Chicago, Tribune or whatever in your news feed. And then all of a sudden you start getting info wars with nobody heard of, right? Mm -hmm. And then all of a sudden Alex Jones becomes, becomes the number one content creator on Facebook. How does that happen, yo? And so <laughs> these are the things that you have to start thinking about. Like how does one 1 a.m. radio personality leap above the New York Times in readership? Um, this is something, this is an unintended consequence. And so you have to go, okay, how does that happen? Mm -hmm. and, and take action. Right. And make sure you're design, designing uh, in the future so it doesn't continue to happen, right? So, right. I mean, yeah. I'm not saying you're not going to make a mistake. That's what I think that goes along with trying to eliminate bias. You will mess up, but just know that and then have milestones and check-ins and ways of your product or service to check in and, 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 and you know this Jeannie, getting your customer feedback is so important. Well, getting feedback on your data models is just as important. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. 100%. Well, oh, go ahead, Jeannie. I was just going to say, I'm sure people have questions and I'm sure people want to know how can they learn from you, Aveta? So where can they reach out? Where can they find more about you? Yeah, they can reach out to me on LinkedIn. Um, I'm also on Twitter at writing princess, but I spend a lot of time on LinkedIn, um, medium pieces and, um, uh, yeah, I'm getting called to my other meetings. Yeah. Oh, cool. <laughs> of course my book, which is coming out and I'll let you know. When, yes, please do. Please do. Well, awesome. thank you so much for this. This was yes, wonderful. Thank you. I can't believe it. It just flew by. I know that's what happens. Well, thank you so much. <laughs> Oveta. Take care. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. So Jeannie, okay. you know there was one question I was dying to ask Oveta, and we never got to it because there was so much good content, <laughs> but I mean, is Skynet going to take over or oh not? Oh my goodness. I, I, mean, I, I was shocked. I was shocked that you didn't at least 
insert that into the conversation. And it so- was very, very hard. <laughs> I was like sitting on my hands kind of thing, right? Um, so I tell you one thing, I learned a lot. Yeah, right, right. And I think the whole idea of how we have to, it, it's like this never ending loop in a way of looking at, okay, what are the machines doing? What are we doing? What are the machines doing? What are we doing? And how does all of that go together? And it's just like, it's mind blowing. And it's also, I think, really exciting. Sometimes we talk about this stuff from a place of fear. I think that there's a lot of optimism around this too, because, you know, think back to the early part of that conversation about how we can recognize, you know what, if if we're if we're creating bias, now we can create strategies to help eliminate it. We're never going to get rid of it, but now we can recognize that that's the first step and let's figure out what's next. So I think there's a ton of opportunity here too. And it's exciting. And there is a part of me that's also scared of Skynet. <laughs> <laughs> Good. I'm glad to see I've infected you with the, uh, with the fear of the future. <laughs> Well, thank you to all the people and machines who happen to be listening to <laughs> Crack the Customer Code right now. We are so appreciative that you're here with us. And of course, we are appreciative of our sponsor, Alita. Check them out at alita.com. That is A-L-I-D-A.com slash C-T-C-C. That's for Crack the Customer Code. You'll find more content and a free Forrester report that you can download there. We appreciate you being here. I am Jeannie Walters. You can find me at experienceinvestigators.com. And I'm Adam DePork, and until the machines take over, you can find me at customersandstrips.com. Until next time, take care of yourself. And take care of your customers. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.